Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Welcome back, storytellers. I am so pleased to be in conversation today with my guest, someone I have admired and learned from for a very long time now, someone who is doing incredible work for both individuals and organizations to forward dialogues on anti-racism and the impacts of colonization with the clear and focused goal of creating communities where everyone matters. I am talking today with Cicely Bell Blaine, a Black mixed queer femme from London, UK, now living on the lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. Their ancestry is a mix of Gambian, Wolof, Jamaican, and English. At the heart of all of their work, Cicely Bell harnesses their passion for justice, liberation, and meaningful change via transformative education, always with laughter and fearlessly in the face of systemic oppression. They are noted for founding Black Lives Matter Vancouver and subsequently being listed as one of Vancouver's 50 most powerful people by Vancouver Magazine in 2018 and again in 2020. Also BC Business's 30 Under 30 and one of Refinery29's powerhouses. Cicely Bell is also an instructor in executive leadership at Simon Fraser University, the editorial director of Ripple of Change magazine, and the author of Burning Sugar, which was published through Arsenal Pulp Press in 2020 as well. Cicely, welcome to Unapologetic Stories. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. I feel just so honored to not only have your presence here on the show, but to have your wisdom. And I wanted to just start here. Let's just start with a big, how are you? How are you doing on this (laughs) rainy day on the West Coast? I'm doing okay. I'm feeling a little apprehensive for the fall and winter, another fall and winter in a pandemic, but otherwise doing all right. Yeah, another fall and winter in a pandemic. It's funny, even as I hear you say that, I'm instantly reminded of how long this has gone on for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is it is a while. And I wanted to actually start, this is a really interesting segue, actually, now that we're talking about the pandemic, because it is layered on top of everything else, all of the other stress. So we have a pandemic and then we have a rainy day. We have a pandemic and then we just have a bad day at work. We have a pandemic and then we have a difficult conversation or a difficult relationship issue that we're contending with. There's always these kind of multi layers of things that we're contending with these days. So I wanted to actually start right off the top with this concept of kind of layered challenges uh, with the principle of intersectionality. And though I have personally been aware of the concept of intersectionality since I studied women and gender studies almost 20 years ago, I cringe (laughs) when I say that, um, I actually credit your team and the Stratagem community, we'll talk about what Stratagem is as well, for really reinforcing the importance of Kimberly Crenshaw's work on intersectionality. So can you tell us about that work first, maybe just define for the listeners what intersectionality is? all about, but also how that intersects with your goal of creating communities where, and I kind of have in bold here, where everyone matters. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's a great question. I think intersectionality is something that has always existed for me in my life, but I think actually coming to understand what it is and really see that in practice was when I think I felt a lot more sort of free and liberated in myself and in my experiences. And, and for me, that really showed up, I think, when I started working with Black Lives Matter here in Vancouver. And for me, it was kind of the first space where I felt that being Black and being queer and being femme were all sort of understood and appreciated in conjunction with one another, as opposed to previous communities I'd been in where I really felt like there was an element of sacrifice in terms of major parts of my identity. So sometimes in queer sp spaces that were predominantly white, I didn't feel included or in black spaces that were predominantly straight and cisgender, I didn't feel super included. Um, so that's really how it showed up for me. But I think, you know, yeah, over time, my understanding of that deepened and grew and, and in the work that I do, even just today, for example, I was moderating a panel about uh, pay equity and we started to talk about how, you know, as we as we close the gap uh, in terms of pay equity between men and women, um, if we fail to apply an intersectional lens to that, uh, Black women, Indigenous women, Latinx women um, and Asian women will uh, will still experience higher higher pay disparities than their white counterparts. So I think it's, yeah, it's something for me that I think started off very personal in terms of trying to find a space where my full self was uh, celebrated. But then, you know, as I sort of infused it more into my work, I began to understand more about the structural barriers that intersectional forms of oppression pose. I began to understand you know, yeah, what the, what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis for, for other folks as well and how different types of intersections kind of kind of show up. And, and I think that has allowed me to develop, I think, more empathy for 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 people when I when I understand, you know, the multitude of barriers they're facing and how for myself, you know, I, I experienced the intersection of being black and queer and a femme, but then also have a multitude of privileges as well. And there are folks whose lived experiences are similar to mine, but they also have the intersections of maybe being disabled or darker skinned or uh, working class. And I think that enables me to, yeah, to really build empathy with, with folks whose experiences are, yeah, at the intersection of a multitude of different systems of oppression. Yeah, this is, this is so important. And you just, the way that you, have even brought up this concept of empathy as well. Yeah. Something that um, I think it was, it may have been Rachel Ricketts actually at your event. Mm. And I'm pulling this from like a, a deep memory now. So I'm, yeah. I'm hoping that I get this right. Had brought um, to the conference, this concept of um, oppression being on a spectrum. And as I hear you talk, or as I hear you kind of talk about intersectionality, we have all of these various kind of social and political identities, how we show up in the world, who we are. And we're always looking for, most people are looking for belonging, this need to find common experience. But as you say, it's like you find this community and you think that it is common experience. And then mm -hmm. you recognize that there is another layer to you. There is more nuance to who you are in that. And there's this kind of spectrum of diversity, spectrum of privilege, spectrum of barriers mm. that everyone faces. And I, I just love that you're sort of bringing this up now because we talk about these various social and political identities, but also there's physical, there's emotional, there's social, emotional, there's neurodivergencies as well. And recently actually you shared online and it really was something that felt really powerful to me at the time as I read it, I just really felt it in every cell of my being. You shared online that you have also have a new diagnosis of ADHD as well. Mm. Can you talk to me a bit about that discovery for yourself and how this fits into even your own full expression of self and figuring out once again, how do we make this community broader, bigger, where even that nuance of self also matters now in all of these other conversations as well and how potentially other people can navigate that as well? 
Yeah, I think for me, really coming into to understanding my own experiences of ADHD has been, yeah, has been a long journey because I think the reasons why I was really struggling for a long time was because of the uh, the existing stereotypes that exist about things like ADHD. Um, you know, it's kind of associated with young boys, usually white boys. Um, and so for me, as someone who was raised as a girl, someone who's a person of color, um, I did not fit into that narrative. And so I think a lot of my experiences now that I look back on my childhood and adolescence were really um, were really overlooked and I was really struggling in, in different ways. And, and um, then when I, yeah, come sort of coming into adulthood and especially now that I run my own business and there's a lot at stake, you know, I have a lot of responsibilities and there were, you know, I think, yeah, already when you face intersections of oppression, you, you sort of question, um, you, you question your sense of self-worth, you question, you know, is there something wrong with me? I'm, you know, why am I different? Yeah. Why am I treated differently? And I think that's what a lot of people sort of experience when, you know, when there are such stringent standards around beauty around bodies and and around and in this case around how our brains function there's you know there's or sort of around social norms there's these expectations and then anybody who doesn't fit into that is 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 weird or or is is bullied or is mistreated or is systemically uh excluded um yeah. so i think for me yeah coming into this this understanding and like connecting the dots and and overcoming that stereotype for myself too like me thinking oh how could I possibly you know have this experience of ADHD my, my brother was diagnosed when he was about eight and it was a pretty straightforward process you know I think even on the flip side people were sort of labeling him as having ADHD as you know a young boy and he's white passing with more energy and it was almost an automatic association right. um, so it's just yeah really interesting to see that contrast even in, in my own family and I'm yeah I'm really passionate about raising awareness of how ADHD can look so many different ways there's so many hidden symptoms that people don't really talk about people have such um narrow stereotypes and biases around around what it looks like so yeah, it's definitely been an interesting journey. And, and, you know, as I've started to talk more about that online and talk more with friends, I've, it's really opened up so many interesting conversations about, um, yeah, about, about what that looks like, especially when you already are experiencing some kind of imposter syndrome or you're already feeling, or not just feeling, but already are being excluded from certain spaces and, and certain yeah. conversations. Um, yeah, so to add that layer, it's it's powerful to to have to have the privilege of accessing a diagnosis. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, you also, I think, open up a whole new can of worms in terms of of the barriers that that are out there. Yeah, that is that is so important, Cicely. I have uh, people who have been listening for a while to this podcast will know that my daughter has ADHD and it's very mm -hmm. interesting what you say, because it's, it's really, it feels so true to me to say that her symptoms are very, um, they're hard to spot and were hard to spot for a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. So as you say, it's typically like you see hyperactive boys and you imagine right away, Oh, we need to maybe access a diagnosis for this child. We need to support this child with something potentially, if that's the, the, you know, the situation that he's in, but with yeah. girls, the symptoms show up so differently. And I had a, a guest on a while ago and she has a diagnosis of ADHD as an adult. And she said something that was quite profound about this lost generation of women mm. who from back, I mean, I'm nearing 40 now, but I think, yeah, I, I can't even imagine because that conversation, we just weren't having that conversation about girls, but then we add on these extra layers as well. Were we having those conversations about uh, we were having them about boys. We were having them more about white boys. Were we mm -hmm. having them about girls? Were we, if we weren't having them about girls, it's, 
highly unlikely we were having them about black girls. There's so much more here. I just think it's incredibly, um, I think it's just very powerful. I think the word that comes to mind that you're bringing all of this to the table and literally kind of intersecting all of this together in one place. It's a, it's a wake up call really. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's so important. And I think, you know, I think I'm very grateful to people who are sharing their stories, you know, on the internet. I feel like if, if that wasn't, yeah, if, if that community didn't exist online, I really would have no idea because even in trying to get a diagnosis from, from healthcare professionals, there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of confusion, even from my own parents, there was, you know, your, your, successful you're hardworking. like there's no way this is this is your experience and I think right. when you add to that all of the other stereotypes I think yeah I, I recall especially as as a child um there, there's kind of a very weird way that a lot of black girls especially don't really get the same kind of childhood that a lot of other children do in terms mm. of either it's um I, I, one of my favorite articles is, is by a writer called Hunter Shackelford and they're talking about like their non-binary experience and they're talking about how from a very young age black girls are associated more with masculinity and seen as being like more boisterous and less delicate and then when they come into their early teens are immediately over sexualized so there's kind of not really a window for for black girls to have the same kind of childhood that a lot of other children do um and I think yeah when I think back in terms of my own experience some of the things that likely were um quite clear examples of of ADHD showing up or examples of neurodivergence or examples of mental health challenges um, were were dismissed because it was in line with, yeah, these boxes that people were trying to to put me in um, and to, yeah, and to overlook and and also to, to many, many folks just not having the sort of cultural or yeah, cultural sensibility or cultural safety to uh, to teach children of different ethnic backgrounds. Yeah, that's so important. Not being able to cultivate the right safe environment to even have these conversations. And I think this is why your work is so important in so many ways. And I think of, I mean, just smaller experiences and I never want to diminish any experience. I think all experiences deserve to be kind of up and uprooted and, and, and dissected and figured out and, and talked about and destigmatized. But personally speaking, I, I can remember being, um, I live with a chronic pain condition and I also live with the effects of trauma and mental health, depression, and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I don't really recall the moment that one or other of those things existed first. I can kind of, I have these markers on the timeline of my life where I say, okay, I had this catastrophic injury. I had this pain condition. And then from the pain and from the trauma, somehow then there was this mental health thing that came up for, you know, it's all the, I can't have one without the other. Now that's for me, it just doesn't exist. I can't have chronic pain and not have depression. It just feels like to even have that as a goal for myself, always, I'm just trying to live up to this, like, let's separate and let's uh, segment all the different parts of your identity. If you want to call it part of your identity or not, I know some people do, some people don't, but all of the different social, emotional, neurodivergency things that people work through, they're all connected to one another. This is, they, they don't live on little islands by themselves. So I think this is so profound to me, as you're saying you know, we have all these mental health issues that you're contending with. And then also later in your life, realizing that there was ADHD at play Mm -hmm. that we Mm -hmm. didn't really know about. And we think, well, of course, of course, all of these things kind of come together. And we just generally as a society have to do better at seeing that these things work in circular fashion with one another. They just work together. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I think, you know, for many folks who do, I think a lot about how, you know, the 
the goal, I suppose, of many liberation movements is for younger generations and future generations to kind of reach a point of, um, you know, of self-actualization and of um, aw- like awareness of, of trauma and, and, and histories. And I think for many folks, maybe their parents, grandparents have gone through um, a lot of hardship so that we can, and also, yeah, previous generations of activists as well have gone through a lot of hardship for, I think a lot of us, a lot of us uh, to, to reach this point of deeper awareness and, and mental health to me is such a huge part of that. And I think, yeah, I think there's, there's for a, a while, but not certainly not long enough, there's been an understanding of the connection between intergenerational trauma and mental health and physical trauma and mental health and abuse and mental health. And I think, now it's becoming more and more apparent how relevant and and how serious that connection is I think you know even when I talk to my grandma or or other older generations in my family it's kind of like yeah that taboo around mental health still exists and I, I wouldn't even say just a taboo but also a disconnect of how like so many of our physical experiences out in the world um, and also intergenerational experiences impact um, mental health as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then adding to that conversation as well is just sort of circling back to something you said earlier, which is that if you are struggling with mental health, but then also face a barrier or a multitude of barriers to accessing healthcare to access or a safe healthcare, I'm going to put that word in there, safe healthcare, healthcare at all, a diagnosis, a safe diagnosis, mm-hmm. and then work thereafter and, and communities and support systems and family structures. I mean, there's so much at play here and it's so important. And I'm going to, I hate to kind of almost shrink this conversation down, but I think that this feels like the thing I want to say right now. And so therefore it's, it's bringing something up for me mm-hmm. at you. I keep mentioning your stratagem conference, which we'll talk about because if nobody's heard of it or somebody's listening out there thinking, what is she, what does she keep talking <laughs> about here? But you had this, this um, artist at your conference as well. And mm-hmm. where this fits in as you're going through the workshops at stratagem at the end of the workshop, you would present the artist's work, maybe not you necessarily, but whoever was teaching the workshop that day. And the artist was taking the speaker or the trainer or the teacher's words and knowledge and actually kind of painting it, I guess, or drawing it, sketching it into this beautiful piece of art that truly I have no words. I'm feeling almost (laughs) like inarticulate even thinking about it because it was surprising, of course, because I'd never experienced that before. But as I looked back at the art and as I think about it now in context of the conversation that we're having, when we think of being sort of inclusive in quotation marks here, particularly for adults, we don't often think about learning styles. And I think back, that's why I felt like I had to say it right now. I'm thinking about this artist now who would just take that information from each course, each workshop and present a visual depiction Mm. of those learnings. What an incredible display of something that's really just occurring to me now that is touching on different learning styles and being able to process information and how we absorb that. I just think how, how literally the word is just how inclusive that is. Never even thought about that before. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's so powerful. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in love with that, that sort of process of, of graphic recording and, and turning. Yeah. Pretty complex topics into these visual illustrations. And I think, yeah, it really is, is, is a poignant example of, of different learning styles. And, and um, I think about, yeah, the amount of barriers and the amount of trauma people have when they've, you know, I think, excuse me, the education system as we know it is so limited in terms of, you know, who it's really catering to and and who it works for. Um, And that's really very few people, but I think, you know, when we think about the purpose even of our current education system, and I think, you know, it's been interesting to kind of watch throughout the pandemic as well, the, the function that, schools have in terms of 
you know, really it, it boils down to they they operate as as a form of childcare. Um, and I think, but functionally they're they're kind of used as a tool of uh almost control or, or you know conformity in a sense. It's a it was a system, you know, created in the industrial revolution as a way to um teach people how to do the same thing for seven or eight hours a day without complaining. Um, and I just think it's it's so fascinating as we become adults and we realize like how expansive learning really is. And yeah, I just, in my journey, like going to therapy, my therapist is always saying, you know, what what age are you right now when you're experiencing this emotion? Like, what does that take you back to or you know when we we run our inclusive language workshop um I'm, I always ask people you know think about a time when language has been used as a tool to hurt to hurt or harm you um and almost everybody's giving examples from when they were like five or ten and it's like wow. so fascinating that those things that impact us in childhood and I think yeah especially for those whose whose childhoods have been impacted or even stripped away entirely um and how yeah there's often not space to explore or acknowledge that that ongoing trauma that that exists there that's so true yeah that's so true and you've talked about your work so let's let's just name it as well you are the ceo of bacau consulting did mm-hmm. I pronounce that properly? I hope I did. Yes, <laughs> yes Bacow Consulting. And it's not new, I understand. It just got a beautiful rebrand lately. It used to be, yeah. I think it was self-named before. Yes, it was. Yes. So talk to me about Bacow Consulting and your work and how all of this kind of that we're talking about, I know these are very big concepts, but it's something that is just in your world, in your life, in your work right now. What does Bacow Consulting do? Yeah, so in essence, we're a equity and inclusion and anti-racism consulting company, and that encompasses a lot of things, so many more things than I think we ever imagined it would. It's, it's, you know, workshops and training are are our sort of biggest offering, Um, but we also do things like auditing and um, like, yeah, assessing organizations for their commitments to DEI. Um, writing policies for organizations and yeah I think especially since over the past year and a half there's been a lot more interest in kind of those longer term relationships from clients and and really doing that work to try to shift um, yeah shift how things are in professional spaces which is often rooted in various systems of oppression and can often be very exclusive and can often be um yeah so many barriers especially when it comes to diversity and leadership for example um or when it comes to pay equity or when it comes to um microaggressions and kind of the everyday harm that people experience so our our goal really is to try to educate people about those issues and then help them find tangible strategy to um yeah to change how to change how things work because oftentimes the status quo is exclusive and and is not encompassing of everybody's um experiences um so yeah we just kind of try to provide the best advice we can based on Mm -hmm. our own knowledge and also our own lived experience as team members and yeah and things like that it's, I mean, it's wonderful work. Um, you mentioned the word strategy. So let's just go there since I've name dropped this now three or four <laughs> times. Is Stratagem Conference coming back? Do you have plans for another one? I hope it is. Yeah. We decided not to do it this year just because it, everything was overwhelming and we didn't know totally. what format it would take. Like, I think, yeah, we had our first conference in 2019 in person and that was amazing. And then we had our virtual conference, which was also amazing and really exceeded our expectations of what a virtual format could do. Um, And we ended up having people from all over the world, speakers from all over the world, which was incredible. Um, So yeah, we definitely do want to bring it back, hopefully next year. Um, 
but yeah, it's just, it's just so tricky to know like what's the best format at this point and yeah, how much effort to put into potentially in-person events. And then, yeah, it's kind of a risk, but I definitely, yeah, we definitely do want to see it come back in some, in some iteration because I think, um, yeah, I think it really just brought together such a cool variety of people who were passionate about social justice and, you know, whether they were coming professionally or just coming personally, I think so many cool conversations came out of that and we were able to go deeper than kind of traditional DEI conferences and, and um, I think it, it's a great way for individuals to engage with our work as well because we're catering to clients um but then there's so many people who just want to do their own learning or you know develop their own commitments to allyship individually so I think that's that's why it's one of our sort of yeah our favorite projects because we get to kind of open ourselves up and engage with the community and and people get to see um yeah people get to see what we're all about and yeah I I hope we can I hope we can bring it back if not next year maybe the year after yeah I I certainly hope so as well it was amazing and I'm watching as a former event producer myself (laughs) I, I just could not take on the virtual thing it really was over my capacity for sure on multiple levels but watching you and your team it the I mean in all seriousness I think you had this conference planned at like the top of 2020 and oh. all, all of us kind of like ticket holders, I think we were expecting to go in person <laughs> and then you had to make probably the quickest pivot of mm-hmm. all time and move mm-hmm. into a virtual space. Like it was, it was rapid, rapid for you to move into that space. I can't even imagine what that time must have felt like for you and moving through not only moving this conference online into a virtual space, having to deal with technology now that probably wasn't going to be a part of the event in many ways. Um, How did it feel for you at that time? I'm just personally very, very curious because I felt the chaos even as a white woman running an event. I can't imagine how it must have felt for you being online, pivoting online, but then also watching online and watching the world kind of all wake up at once. Mm-hmm. Or I think maybe there's a mix absolutely of waking up or guilting up or however you want to mm-hmm. kind of witness that. How was that moment for you? Yeah, it was intense. It was, it was definitely stressful. It was, you know, yeah, I remember we came together as a team and, and we're like, yeah, in the very early days of the pandemic, nobody knew what was going on. We're like, yeah, this will definitely be over by September 2020. Like, <laughs> yeah. No need to worry. Um, this is just a short thing. Um, but I'm very, very glad we did not take that risk. Um, and yeah, we started to look into virtual offerings and it was, yeah, it was definitely stressful. And I think even even now, like so many, you know, companies and tech tech companies have advanced and enhanced their virtual offerings. But even at that time, there weren't many examples of online, fully online conferences being done. Um, and I think we took a big risk in terms of changing the format as well, because, yeah. you know, we... I could not bear the thought of, you know, trying to do like two or three full days online. Um, So we decided to have the same, roughly the same amount of workshops and the same amount of speakers, but um, spread out over the period of a month, which I would probably not do again. That was a bit interesting. (laughs) Um, That was, yeah, just by the end, I think we were so exhausted. Everybody's kind of like zoomed out. And, you know, as a team, we kind of had to constantly be on, constantly be available. There wasn't really such a thing as any kind of like downtime. You know, there was always people asking questions. And yeah, we went from having about 250 people in person in 2019 to having over a thousand people tune in virtually. Um, 
And at one point we kind of just became like customer service, essentially trying to support everybody with their tech needs and and things like that. So yeah, it became a lot. Um, I mean, overall, I think people really enjoyed it and we got lots of great feedback. Um, And I think if, if we were to do it again, I think, yeah, that there's lots of cool, like, virtual event platforms that have kind of popped up. Um, so we would certainly consider that, which I think reduces some of the stress in terms yeah. of, um, yeah, in terms of organizing. But yeah, it was definitely a huge, huge undertaking. Um, but yeah, I'm really happy with with how it turned out. Oh, absolutely. And you should be. It was, it was really, really, in a lot of ways, groundbreaking for the, even just the virtual space. It was pretty groundbreaking at that time to be uh-huh. doing what you were doing, but the information, as I, I've talked about a, a little bit here today as well, um, was incredible. And if you are also now, as you are translating this into organizations and larger communities through the work of Bacow, I can only imagine that this ripple literally is going to continue this ripple effect of all of the work that you are doing based on just your own personal experience with having to belong and figure out where the barriers are and how to break through them fearlessly, mm-hmm. fearlessly, as your bio said. So <laughs> I, I dropped the word ripple effect here deliberately because you are also in all this work. I'm just, I am really, <laughs> really, there's such an admiration that I have for you on multiple levels, but not the least of which being the sheer volume of work that you are putting out into the world. You are also the editorial director for Ripple of Change magazine. Mm-hmm. What is Ripple of Change magazine? I certainly, I, I know what it is online, but tell me where it started and what the story is and what the mission is of Ripple of Change. Yeah, so Ripple of Change is a magazine that um, five founders, we came together um, and we all had kind of like different skills and, and talents in terms of basically everything that it takes to create a magazine. So we kind of felt like, oh, this is, yeah, this is such a cool like merging of minds. Um, And we really wanted to connect people's stories and organizations who are doing really good work um, with people who are looking to help and looking to support and looking to make tangible change in the world. And I think, yeah, it kind of grew from there. And we kind of we kind of had this format of, you know, we profile powerful stories. Um, and we also complement that with like really good writing, really beautiful imagery. And then we also make sure that each story has tangible action items or takeaways for our readers so that if they've read something, it doesn't just, you know, kind of go into the back of their minds. There's actually like here's something you can do if you've got $5. Here's something you can do if you've got $5,000. Here's something mm-hmm. you can do if you've got five minutes. Um, you know, just kind of action items ranging from signing a petition to, you know, sponsoring a school or, or things like that. And I think, yeah, it was really a cool coming together for me of, of my passions in terms of writing and activism and publishing and also just kind of, yeah, bringing a human element back to a lot of stories. And um, yeah. and I think also we really wanted to combat like the white savior voluntourism narrative as well and kind of like remind people that even within that realm, like, yeah, you know, people who are looking to do good in the world, um, that good needs to be done in a way that's ethical and conscious and sustainable. Um, And so we wanted to provide advice to our audience around that too. That's great. Yeah. Really, really, really powerful point. Mm -hmm. In fact, your second issue is coming out soon. I just received a beautiful newsletter drop in my inbox Mm -hmm. here and I read about it. And this is maybe where you were going with that as well about this saviorism and we want to do good, but there's just missing ethics and we're, shooting the dart at the wrong location. The second issue, and I'm quoting, um, the second issue investigates questions and real stories of humans and organizations 
learning, questioning, and revolutionizing for real and lasting change. And then I'll kind of plug in your words there, which is ethical and also sustainable. Mm -hmm. So this second issue, it sounds to me like the importance here on saying, we see you out there wanting to do good. However, let's kind of shape this in, in a way that really does create the kind of lasting change that is going to impact the largest amount of marginalized people. Does that feel true? Yeah, definitely. Because I think, um, yeah, people are so eager to go, excited to, um, you know, get involved, do the work, but sometimes the, yeah, the enthusiasm and passion might be misaligned with what people who need or are looking for change are actually asking for. And I think that's often, you know, where things like yeah, like, you know, volunteering trips to Africa, you know, yes, kind of, yeah, miss the mark because, you know, people in, in local communities are actually asking for one thing and people are coming in, you know, throwing money at them, throwing clothes at them. And they're saying, no, actually we need, I don't know, bricks to, to build this, or we need financial literacy or whatever it might be. So I think by highlighting those people's stories, those specific stories, um, those people get a chance to speak for themselves what is needed. Um, and that might be, so, yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, something that a, a, a donor or a volunteer hasn't actually considered before. Um, and I think also, you know, even in the, in terms of, yeah, just taking, you know, Africa as a continent in general, like there is a, a limited, um, I think, yeah, from a Western perspective, we have a limited ability to see different African countries and, and communities as being unique and different and, you know, having different cultural aspects, facing different challenges and this kind of like homogenization of, um, of that, of those cultures, um, I think contributes to that kind of aid that is not specific and not meaningful and therefore not sustainable you know like I I think a lot of us have when I was when I was in when I was in 11th grade I went on a volunteering trip to Ecuador um you know we painted some walls um, and we never went back like I have no idea what's happening there now and you know what we did was well-intentioned but but not sustainable like I don't know you know if they still have the infrastructure to do the upkeep or if they have you know, if that really changed anything, or if that was more for our own feeling of, you know, feeling good about that. Um, and so, yeah, I re- really am passionate about kind of disrupting that homogenization of, especially the global South and, and even here in Canada, you know, the homogenization of rural communities and indigenous communities. And, and it can be tempting when, yeah, when you want to do good to feel like I, mu- I must change everything. I must save everybody. I must, you know, do, do all of these things. But sometimes it's more effective to support one or two people or one or two grassroots initiatives um, to give them the long-term opportunity to, yeah, demand change in in a way that works for them or make their own change in a way that works for them. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of the inspiration and passion behind Ripple of Change. Yeah. Just that though. Hey, that was really big. I (laughs) have just even in that last five minutes, I'm like, wow, I had so many light bulbs going off (laughs) and so much. So in that, um, what I'm kind of hearing, and I, I love that you've, you've talked about the homogenization here because not only does this link back to some of your own personal story, like I'm trying to fit into this black community group on campus, or I'm trying to fit into the LGBTQ group on campus. And you're finding Mm -hmm. pieces and parts of yourself that homogenizes one piece of your identity. And really what this message is I'm hearing, and I, this is certainly just my perception of what some of the things that you just brought here is that storytelling really is about listening to individuals and listening to individual groups say, at the end of the day, there isn't one need and one thing that you can do that will fulfill everything for Mm -hmm. somebody who 
looks like me, talks like me, is the same age as me, has the same disability as me. We are all individuals with individual needs. There is, looping back to the conversation on intersectionality, there are intersections of our identities, but there's also intersectional needs that exist within each community. And so the importance of not just throwing one lens on one community and saying, this is what's needed, because it feels so centric. It feels so like helper centric, right? Mm. I, I want to do this because it's going to feel good for me to do mm-hmm. this thing. Or I've been fed some narrative that if I do that, I'm a good person versus just sitting back and listening for a while and saying, tell me your story, tell me your story and what I can do to support that story. What a beautiful mission that ripple of change is bringing and not just on the um, philosophical level here, but also just tactically speaking, we can literally go online. We can get the issue of this magazine and read these individual stories and then also see what is the actual ask versus what is it that we feel like we need to be doing right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, yeah, I think it's so important for people to, to really think about that and to, to, and I think also like part of what we want to say with ripple of change is, or yeah, I think there's a, there's an important element of, especially those folks who maybe will come to come to read the magazine because they're interested in volunteering, they're interested in humanitarianism. Yeah. Um, I would also like them to think about activism in a more radical sense as well because I think yeah there's a lot of folks who are like passionate about doing good they make their charity donations um but then maybe when it comes to something like Black Lives Matter or defund the police or I don't know more they they might have a little bit of hesitancy about that because it might seem you know more radical more extreme but I think ultimately this it's the same thing you know it's people asking for um, liberation. It's people asking for systemic change. It's people asking for donations to be able to make things happen for their community. Right. Um, and so I, I hope also the magazine serves in this purpose to like bridge that gap as well um, in terms of, yeah, so helping people to understand that doing, yeah, doing good, helping people is not necessarily always a financial thing it's not always transactional it's there's so many different ways that you can support people in in reaching their goals and and advocating for their for their causes and and sometimes I think yeah we we there is a little bit of a a, uh yeah I guess a gap between folks who might be interested in volunteering or humanitarian work and then folks who are more like on the ground grassroots activists but ultimately you know are looking to achieve very similar goals um but I think also you know activists especially are often very villainized in the media and are often you know vilified and and um yeah sensationalized um and misinterpreted uh and so by also giving a voice or not giving a voice, but uplifting the voices of um, of activists as well, we're able to kind of humanize them or rehumanize them in a way that mainstream media is trying to take away some of that um, that human element. Yeah, absolutely true. It does. It, it dehumanizes activists in a way that, and and you plugged in the word radical here, that we think about that word or we hear that word and we think is radical good or bad. We have this judgment placed around it that makes Mm -hmm. people hesitant or step away. And that's a really important thing to bring up, I think. And I'm going to quote you here because I think it's important in the context of this conversation. And this is Cicely's quote, the liberation of black people contributes to the liberation of us all. So there is a greater need here as well for being in the activism, in being more radical than just being transactional. It is because sure there is the liberation of black people. That's the goal. But the overarching goal here, as you say, liberates all of us. Why Mm -hmm. is that? Tell me, tell me why so that we can, the listeners can really understand why it's important. Yeah. I mean, I think when we, when we break it down bluntly, like our most, yeah, our systems of oppression the way that they exist is they rely on hierarchies you know they uh, they rely on um 
yeah, falsely socially constructed hierarchy. So if we think about race, for example, it relies on, you know, social Darwinism and, and those kind of pseudosciences where white folks are put at the top and then um, everyone else is beneath, but there's still within that a hierarchy in which black and indigenous people um, are, are typically seen as, as being at the bottom. And, and then even, you know, even in Canada that manifests as, you know, we might see Asian folks as being, um, what is often referred to as model minorities, as in, you know, they're they're not white, but are, I guess, uh, assimilating or conforming to quote unquote Canadian, uh, white Canadian culture better than, again, in quotations, uh, black and Latinx immigrants, and, you know, certainly better than, again, in quotations, uh, indigenous folks. And I think that that hierarchy continues to, um, exist in which it means that those um uh in this case yeah maybe like folks of asian descent can also be complicit in anti-blackness and can also be complicit in anti-indigenous racism um and the same goes with all other systems of oppression the same goes with gender um you know with men being at the top uh and then women, and then folks who are gender non-conforming and then of course when you add an intersectional lens to that um, it creates even more levels of hierarchy. So, yeah, I think for me, it's it, it's important for people to recognize that, yeah, you, you know, when the average person who maybe doesn't have much of, much of a social justice background, when they see something like Black Lives Matter, they may interpret it as Black Lives Matter as an organization is saying Black Lives Matter and only Black Lives Matter or right. Black Lives Matter more than other people. Now, this was obviously not something anybody ever said, but that's where people take it if they don't have an anti-racist lens, like if they can't see how those hierarchies were very clearly created over time through specific events and projects like slavery and, and colonization. And especially, you know, when we live in a settler colonial nation, it's not like colonization ever ended. Um, and so when you look at it from that lens, you realize people are saying Black Lives Matter because currently in in society and in the system black lives do not matter to the system right black lives are, are um seen as disposable or you know um are, are facing violence and and so many other forms of harm and systemic barriers so yeah i think when those who are yeah, to put it simply, at the bottom of the hierarchy are achieving their liberation. Anybody else above that or within that group is also going to benefit from that liberation process, right? And I think about it, like, I think for me, the easiest example is to think about, like, um, is to think about gender. So if we think about, you know, trans and non-binary people um, gaining more rights and gaming, gaining more uh, access to healthcare and being represented more in mainstream media. This, of course, benefits trans and non-binary people, but this also benefits um, cis women, for example, right? If we if we live in a more gender-neutral society, the impacts of the patriarchy are less extreme and the impacts of sexism are less extreme. If we live in a more gender-neutral society, and I remember when I first started doing this work, I was asked to edit a policy from an organization that's many many years old they hadn't updated their policy since like the 80s and every in the policy every time it referred to a member of staff the pronoun was he so they were assuming that women in general would never enter this workplace right um, so it's then you know they they were saying oh shouldn't we change that to he slash she and I was like well if we just change it to they this removes all of the barriers right and and I think that's so fascinating to me to think about we you know people often see okay advocating for gender neutral language for example is a um a mission of primarily a mission spearheaded by the lgbtq2s plus community but if everybody were to be advocating for more gender neutral language, this would transform all of our spaces and break down 
all of the gender barriers that are ex that are impacting people of all different gender identities. So I think, yeah, it's, yeah, when we say that, you know, the liberation of, of one group really does benefit all. Um, yeah, I think there's so much evidence that that shows that it, it, it benefits beyond that group. And, and so if we try, if we use more gender neutral language, for example, in job postings or in workplace policies, this enhances gender equity for trans and non-binary people, but also for cis women um, as well. So yeah, I think that's really why that statement is so powerful. Yeah, very, very powerful. And I love that we're plugging in the word equity here as opposed to equality, or maybe in conjunction with the word equality, I don't want to say as opposed to, but noticing that nuance, that little difference in equity, which really speaks to the barriers that people face, the barriers that are in place in organizations, in workplaces, in individual conversations across the dining table with your family. I mean, these mm -hmm. barriers exist everywhere in schools, as you mentioned, for us, for our children, in conferences, in virtual spaces, there is always the barrier. So just turning our awareness to that and asking who is being held back in some way in this particular environment, being opening our eyes to even say, what's here, what's present, but also what's not present. Mm -hmm. what, what have we not really accounted for? So, so incredibly important. Cicely, I cannot believe that we've even gotten to sort of the end of our time together <laughs> here recording. I could absolutely listen to you talk all day and we'll continue to do so by following you online, working through any of the conferences that you put out. I just find them just absolutely groundbreaking and, and amazing, but also just that injection of humor and laughter, as we said at the top in your bio that you bring into all of your work. It just really feels like you're doing some, some profound and important work in the world. And so I wanted to end with, I always call it my secrets are out segment. It's sort of a <laughs> rapid fire just to bring a little laughter in here as well. And maybe the most important question of all, something that I know you've talked about, you talked about it online in the conference on your social media account. You are a giant fan of dinosaurs. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> You're a big fan of dinosaurs. I just want to know rapid fire question. Number one, what is your favorite dinosaur and why? <laughs> My favorite dinosaur is a Parasaurolophus. Um, I actually have a tattoo of one on my arm. Oh my goodness. Um, I just think they're so cute. They are one of the few dinosaurs that don't make a noise from their mouth. They make a noise by blowing through a horn on their head. And I just thought that was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> I've never even heard of this dinosaur ever. So learned one more thing from you today. Um, my next question for you in Secrets Are Out here. You and I actually share a common love I've heard for the Bachelor and Bachelorette franchise. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, I mean, and, and the impact that this franchise has on the world is something that we can't shy away from anyway. We mm -hmm. need to, to know what, just tell me what is on your mind right now, if you're watching Bachelor in Paradise, what is on your mind about this franchise in general <laughs> right now? Oh, it's just it's just, I just love the chaos. Like it's it started <laughs> out as like a guilty pleasure, but then especially yeah. over the past few seasons when they've actually started to integrate, like, yeah, all of these conversations that are happening, you know, having the first black bachelor and like, even just to see the, you know, I don't know, am I allowed to give spoilers? Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Go for it. This, those, this won't air for a while. So go. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Like what's happening with like what happened to Natasha on bachelor in paradise. And like, yes. it's just so fascinating to see like um, people responding to that and like responding, I think in a very different way that then they would have maybe like two years ago. Whereas like, like, for example, like looking at the comments on like Piper's um, social media and people being like, how could you do this to another black woman? Like, how could you do this like to a darker skinned black woman? And it's like, that's so fascinating that people are picking up on those nuances of like how, yeah, Natasha was treated and yeah. like, um, yeah, like how messed up it is that, yeah, like the so often on that show, like darker skinned black women are like just done wrong. And I think it's so fascinating to see like mainstream audiences actually tune into that and 
also comment on that. It was just like really mind blowing. And it's just, it's cool that something that, yeah, originally started out as like, I don't know if I should tell anyone I watched this. And now it's become <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, well, multiple things. Like I think in general, my own, um, how I approach my own self-care has changed in terms of like, I don't really need to feel guilty about things that, you know, bring me joy. Um, yes. But also, yeah, it's just so interesting how the, how, yeah, with the change of hosts and all of that, it's, it's coming. I feel like it's come further into the 21st century in the past year than it did in like the past 10 years. It's crazy, right? It really yeah. is. I mean, and I feel the same way as you do. I was like, do I tell people I watch this show? Because I've been watching it since it literally started. It was really, <laughs> it was, it was just my shut off. And I can actually recall I had a, um, I feel like I've shared this before on the podcast, but I had a roommate in university and we, I was always watching. I don't, I don't think it was the bachelor back then. I, I don't think it was, maybe it was, I can't even think now I'm dating myself here, but it was like American idol or there was something else. There was some other reality show I was watching. And mm-hmm. I remember her saying to me, why do you watch this garbage? Like you're studying, you know, women and disabilities and you're doing such big work and you're study- like all of these big topics and essays that you're writing and presenting. And, you know, why are you watching this garbage? And I said, because I do all of that other work, <laughs> I need to watch this garbage. I need my brain to kind of come down. It gives me joy. It's hilarious. Yeah. It's a bit cuckoo. But also, as you said, it's like now there's things to think about. And we're talking, we are going to, we're just going to spoil this because it will come out anyway, but we're talking sort of about the Brendan and Piper thing. Mm-hmm. Did you see his apology today? I didn't actually. Oh, Sicily. <laughs> Am I in for a treat? you're in for a treat and I'm putting, um, apology in giant quotation marks. You can't (laughs) see me right now, but my fingers are in the air doing air quotes. It was, oh, it was quite something. So it's interesting to kind of see the dialogue and then he shut the comments off as well. Anyway, I, this will give you some joy today. I think if you go down the path of seeing the top five comments that he allowed to stay and then the rest that were deleted and then closed off. So anyway, super fun. (laughs) super fun um I love that but yes I will continue watching The Bachelor and Bachelorette and there's some big they're fun conversations there's some big conversations and and um I actually had said this I saw I had Mike Johnson on the podcast a while back and I had said to him too I I didn't know if I really wanted to talk about this I didn't really want to talk about The Bachelor and Bachelorette there's so many other things he had a book out that was much more important talking about really big issues Mm -hmm. and then I said how many people watch this show? How many people, how much impact the literal ripple effect of conversations happening in this show, it makes it not just the joy and the chaos, but also makes the conversations kind of important as well that we're having these dialogues, as you said. So I'm going to end here (laughs) with sort of a final question here for you. If your mission, we know it is, but our mission, if we can kind of get into this collective mission of creating communities where everyone matters. What is one thing that listeners can do literally right now today, as they're listening to this, they put down their podcast, they put down their phone. What can they do right now to contribute to creating communities where everyone matters, contributing to that change? I would say, I think the best thing people can do is try to find ways where they can build more empathy for people whose experiences are different than their own. Because I think we get very caught up in, yeah, in our own experiences, which is important. And I think we have to also do the work of, you know, self-exploration, you know, self-healing, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. But I also think that we live in such a fascinating time where we have the most access to information ever, but probably also the least amount of media literacy as well. Like we, and also to be, yeah, just to be so mindful of algorithms and like we, we are in essence really being pigeonholed into silos and we're only going to see 
information that confirms our biases Um, so I really think just trying to you know whether it's you know buying artwork from an artist that you've never heard of who's maybe of a different cultural background or like reading a book whether that's fiction or non-fiction by an author from the other side of the world or I don't know whatever whatever you do in your life that brings you joy just try to add a bit of a intersectional lens to it Um, you know if you like cooking maybe try a different cuisine or you know if you are always on Reddit, maybe try to join a thread from a different country. I don't know. I just think that, um, yeah, I think we, we are given the illusion and we often give ourselves the illusion that because we have so much access to information that we are therefore unbiased in, in how we engage with that information and that we know everything that there is to know. And, um, you know, people in workshops, they often you know, I might correct someone on the appropriate terminology for some for something and, and they ask me, oh, how did you know that? Like, where do you get that information? And it's like, well, you know, it's not like, it's not like the DSM or the dictionary. It's not gonna, like this information is not gonna be published or updated as quickly as it's changing. So I think, right. you know, staying present on, on social media and, you know, interacting with communities and, and, you know, where possibly where possible compensating people for their labor and, you know, advice, I think is important because, yeah, it, it's, you know, if you're waiting for your annual DEI training to like find out what is the, the best, most appropriate language, you're going to spend a lot of time using inappropriate terminology or, or inadvertently harming people. So, yeah, I think it's, it's about that, that, that curiosity, that self-vigilance and and really putting effort into into what you consume yeah oh I love that and I love that we ended on curiosity as well because that's really the crux of this too is just get curious about somebody else who has a different lived experience than you it seems so simple as we just lay it out like that but it is it can be sometimes very hard work particularly when we're enveloped in our own life under a pandemic and all kinds of Mm. other stuff but just thank you for sharing that just be curious step into curiosity ask more questions about what you're consuming and of course follow Sicily I will have (laughs) all of their information in the show notes uh, all the social handles every way and shape and form that you can access their work Sicily Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast, for having this conversation with me. I just appreciate you so much. Thank you for having me. This was great. Yes, you're so welcome. And hopefully I can have you back at some point just to talk straight up dinosaurs and bachelorette. (laughs) Anytime. (laughs) Anytime. Thanks again. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth.